0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. O great God of highest heaven, we have come here today to worship you, to praise your name, to thank you God for all that you have done, for all that you are doing. We pray you would glorify your name in this place. We pray that you would lead us, Father, step by step in your will for us as a church. That you would use our church, Father, to shine a light here and everywhere that you send us. Father, may you speak to us now through your word. May you guide us today by your spirit. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you open them with me to the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 6, and just hold your place there. We'll be looking at that passage together in just a few minutes, but uh, today's service and, and this message as well will be a little bit different than what we normally do. Uh, Because on this Fall Vision Day Sunday, we're taking a one week break from our study of the book of Job. And we're just going to spend some time talking together about some of the things that God is doing in the life of our church. As you heard earlier in our service, this month marks one year since we kicked off greater things last fall. And it's hard to believe, at least it is for me, that it has already been one year since the start of Greater Things. If you've been with us this last year, you know that this whole vision from Greater Things comes from what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I still see some of you wearing these blue wristbands that have this verse on it, John 14, 12. But listen to these words from Jesus. He said, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. It's amazing that because we live on this side of the cross, because we're able to point people to the finished work of Jesus Christ, to what he has done at the cross, what he has done as he rose from the dead from uh, that tomb, uh, that greater things can happen now because of that completed work of Christ. And so when you take what the Lord Jesus said there in John 14 and and you combine it with what he said in Matthew 28 when he called us to go and to make disciples, uh, really this is what we shared with, with you church family last fall. We said we believe that God has called us to do greater things here and everywhere to make disciples for the glory of God. And there are really two clear parts of that statement that make up the two main aspects of this Greater Things vision. First off, we believe that God has called us to do greater things here to make disciples. Now, over the course of the last few years especially, the Lord uh, has blessed our church. He has sent us more and more folks, more and more families, uh, more and more people of all ages. Now, we have the privilege of serving King Jesus Together And it is a privilege. Maybe you are someone that uh, the Lord has brought to our church family in the last year or two years or three years, and we're so thankful that you are here. But we also know as a church, and really we came to this decision more than two years ago now, uh, that if we're going to be able to continue to reach uh, more and more people here in the future, then the time to act is now, to make space For them to be able to come. We believe the time is now to use the land that is located just to the south of us that the Lord gave to us actually more than 20 years ago now, and to use that space to prepare for those that the Lord will send. Some of you have seen this uh, before, but uh, but this little diagram kind of shows some of the main elements of this proposed expansion of our facility. So just to the south of us, uh, that red block that you see contains two things it contains a new dedicated worship space that'll hold roughly double the, uh, the those that, that can be held in this room here it'll enable us to get back to two uh, worship services on Sunday morning with plenty of room to grow in that space as well also in that red section is uh, an area of space that we're just calling the atrium or the gathering space uh, it, it's a place that really just connects all of the buildings together the new worship center with the education building with this building that we're in right now uh, it allows room just for that number of people to go and to come and, and to connect with each other before uh, and after services. A little difficult to do right now uh, in our hallways. And then probably the least exciting part of this, but a necessary part nonetheless, is that parking lot that you see uh, to the south of, of that new uh, building, uh, where really the majority of our parking will be in the future on the south side uh, of, our, of our campus. our campus. There's another diagram in the booklet that you received earlier that that shows you a little bit more uh, about that. Uh, Also, this is one of the renderings that we've received of the exterior of the building. This is uh, kind of taken from the angle outside or to the south of the education building. Uh, looking uh, towards the northwest uh, at that atrium, at what will be the main entrance to our church in the future, the entrance that will lead you into the atrium and then into the sanctuary uh, from there. I'm excited also to be able to show you for the first time a couple of the initial concepts of what the inside of the new worship center uh, could look like in the future. Uh, this first one uh, gives you a glimpse. It's kind of from the back of uh, the room, from the riser seating that will be in the back. And then we have a shot that's also a little bit uh, closer up, I believe, that shows you a little bit more. And again, just some initial renderings of what uh, that room could look like in the future. And as we shared earlier in the service, just continue to be in prayer for our, worship team, for our building team As uh, they work with the city, as they work to finalize uh, all of these uh, details, Uh, our hope is to finalize everything by the spring of this upcoming year, to be able to bring a final set of plans to you as a church family to approve those plans, uh, and then to be able to break ground. And uh, these are exciting days uh, for our church uh, as we get closer and closer to having more room to share the gospel with more of our friends, more of our neighbors Uh, that the Lord would send to us. You know, as we shared uh, a year ago, we know that God is not only calling us to make disciples here where we are, but he's calling us to make disciples everywhere that he sends us. And we know that even if the Lord were to bless us in such an amazing way, that, that we were able to move into this new space and even to fill it multiple times a weekend, we still realize that that is just a drop in the bucket to the lostness that is all around us, to the great need that is around us, even right here in Melbourne and Palm Bay. And that's why we know uh, that there's going to be a need for more churches here in the Space Coast area. There's a need for more churches all across our nation, especially in the major cities of our country. There's a need for more churches, even internationally, in some of the hard-to-reach places in this world. And we want, by God's grace, to be a part of that. We want to be a multiplying church, a church-planting church. And that's why a year ago now, we started our church-planting pipeline to begin to train Uh, pastors and ministry leaders and lay folks from our church who would say, I'm willing to be sent. I'm willing to be a part of a new work. And some of you have been a part of that pipeline this past year. Uh, Some of you are beginning your first year of training this year, and, and actually there's still Still time to jump in as those groups are just beginning uh, this month in September. And so if God would touch your heart and say, I want to be prepared. I don't know what the future holds, but but I'm willing to pray about that. I'm willing to be equipped and trained, possibly to be sent as a part of a church planting team in the future. Then just let us know about that, even in the next week or two. And you can jump in and be a part of this year of training that is starting Right now, just in the last few weeks, we renamed our church planting pipeline and we're calling it Launchpad. And really, this name just plays off of where we're located here on the space coast of Florida, because this really is our prayer that by God's grace, we would be able to be a launching pad for new church starts, both here in the space coast, as well as wherever the Lord would send us around the world. Another exciting thing to share with you today, and you may have seen it as you came in uh, today, is our new Greater Things Center that opened up right through these rear doors to your back and left there. And uh, that is really the place to go over the course of the next few months uh, just to stay up to date on what is happening with Greater Things, whether with uh, our facility expansion or with the launch pad. Uh, If you're new to our church, you can even go there today after the service and get some of the materials that were handed out a year ago, which will help to fill in some of the backstory of this Greater Things uh, vision. But even for our home folks, there's some new information back there. Uh, The TV there will be refreshed uh, as the months go along uh, with the latest pictures and renderings that we receive. And so again, it's just a great one-stop shop for everything related to Greater Things. and, And I appreciate so much our team. Uh, that has worked so hard over the course of these past few weeks, even around the hurricane, uh, to get that Greater Things Center ready for you today. Uh, a little later in the message, uh, I'm going to share a very specific uh, giving goal that the Lord has laid on the hearts of your pastors on this one year anniversary of Greater Things. Uh, but before I even get to that, um, you know, I really believe that what the Lord cares about the most really isn't how the Greater Things campaign is going. It isn't really about how much has been given or even how much will be given. I think what the Lord cares about the most does not have to do with that because I believe, and I think you believe as well, that when the Lord wants something to happen, he will always cause it to happen. That the Lord always provides what is needed for the things that he sets out to do. And so what I believe the Lord is most concerned about is not that. What he's most concerned about is our hearts. And whether our hearts are really where he wants our hearts to be. I believe he wants us to remember throughout this whole process that he is our great God and Savior. And that we cannot do any of this apart from him. And I think that's why God has led me today to share a story from the book of Judges of a man named Gideon. Now Gideon's whole story takes up three chapters. It's found in Judges 6, 7, and 8. With the time we have today, we'll just be looking at a portion of his story. You know, the book of Judges is a book of cycles. If you've read the book of Judges before, you, you know that, that the people of God just go through the same cycle over and over again. That they sin against the Lord and because they do, the Lord in his judgment upon them allows a, an oppressor, a, a foreign entity in power to come. And, and just to begin to oppress them and, and to rule over them for a period of time. And, and then finally when God's people hit rock bottom, when they come to their breaking point, they cry out to God and they ask God to deliver them. And God in his mercy and God in his grace raises up a deliverer called a judge to rescue his people from captivity to their oppressors. Samson is probably the most famous of all the judges that we know about from the book of Judges. But probably a close second is this man, Gideon, that God raises up to rescue his people. Now, we won't read it, but in the first 10, chap- 10 verses of chapter 6, we find the background of what was going on in Gideon's day. This time, it was the Midianites who were oppressing God's people. They had been oppressing Israel for seven years by this point, and the oppression was actually pretty bad. It was more like a reign of terror. Because every year the Midianites would come in and they would just destroy the land and ravage the crops and make it difficult for God's people even to have anything to eat for that next year. In fact, it was so bad that verse 2 says that God's people were hiding out in caves and in strongholds in the mountains because they were so afraid of these Midianites who were oppressing them. And so this is what was going on. When God shows up on Gideon's doorstep and calls him to be the next judge, the next deliverer of his people. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor." Gideon said to him, "O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? so he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And as we walk through this story today and as we think about where we are as a church and all that is going on with greater things, there are several potential pitfalls that I believe the Lord would have us to be on our guard against. There are three areas specifically that I believe the Lord would want us to cry out to him and to ask him to save us, to ask him to deliver us from these pitfalls. And here's here's the first one. We need to say to God, God save us from our inadequacy. God save us from our inadequacy. I don't think there's any question That Gideon looked like he was inadequate and felt like he was inadequate for what the Lord was calling him to do. In verse 1, notice that it's the angel of the Lord who appears to Gideon on this occasion. And there's different interpretations about who this angel of the Lord really was. Uh, But I believe that based on the fact that he receives Gideon's worship later in this chapter, really that tells us that this was not just an ordinary angel. Ordinary angels never allowed themselves to be worshipped, but always uh, directed that worship to go upwards to God. And so really, I believe that the angel of the Lord here is none other than the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who is making an appearance before his incarnation, In other words, this was Jesus, the eternal Son of God, before Bethlehem, showing up and talking to Gideon. And it's so neat to think about that because he's coming to Gideon and and, and calling Gideon to be the savior of God's people right then in that historical moment. And yet the one that is speaking to him and the one that is calling Gideon to this task is really the ultimate savior of God's people. The one who would save all of us through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. Verse 11, it says that when the Lord appeared to Gideon, Gideon was threshing wheat, and he was threshing wheat in an unusual place. He was doing it down in a wine press. And a wine press would have been located a little bit actually below the surface of the ground. And presumably Gideon was doing that because he was afraid of the Midianites. So he was trying to hide what he was doing as he was threshing his wheat. And so here he is crouching down out of view... So that he won't be seen by the enemy when the angel of the Lord shows up and speaks to him the words that you see in verse 12. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. (laughs) It's a little bit ironic, right? When you think about it, that here is God speaking to Gideon about his valor. And Gideon is so lacking in valor at this moment that he has to peek his head up out of a hole in the ground, even to hear what the angel of the Lord is saying to him. And Gideon's response isn't super fantastic either as at first what he expresses in verse 13 is how he feels like the Lord has just abandoned his people even though it was the Lord who was coming to his people and was speaking with Gideon even at that very moment. But the Lord is undeterred by Gideon's comment. And in verse 14, he says to him, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And so here is the call, right? This is God's man. Gideon is God's choice to deliver his people. But Gideon feels inadequate. Gideon does not feel up to the task that God is calling him to do, and that's why he responds the way he does in verse 15. He says, oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Now he's using language that we don't normally use, a language of clans and of his family's house, and, and yet basically what he's saying is that he feels like he is pretty much the most insignificant person In all of Israel, he's saying, My my clan that I'm a part of is the most insignificant clan in Israel. And, and, And then, even when it comes to my clan, even when it comes to my family, I'm basically the weakest, most insignificant part of my family. So he's saying, God, I'm essentially the last person in all of Israel that you should have chosen to do this job. There's just no getting around it. Gideon felt inadequate and insignificant. To do this huge task. When it comes to what's in front of us with greater things, I don't know how we couldn't feel inadequate in the face of such a huge task. And we've been living with this number for a while now that there's 282,000 people within 10 miles of us, which means there's more than 200,000 people right around us who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's an overwhelming number when you think about the fact that God has called us to share the gospel with all of them with every man and every woman and every boy and every girl that he has placed right around our church. And and even when you kind of back up the vantage point and and look at the broader context, the task doesn't get any smaller. When you look across our country, we've seen this statistic as well, that a hundred years ago there was one Baptist church for every 6,828 people, and now that number is down to one church for every 430 people. When you look at that, what you see is that while the population in our nation is growing and even exploding, the number of churches, and I assure you it's no different for other denominations as well, the number of churches is less today per person by a long way than it was a hundred years ago. This is a huge task. And again, that's why we believe God has called us to do something about that. And so the goal that we've shared with you many times now is to plant one church per year starting in the year 21. And, and, you know, we have put that statistic or that goal up on the screen a number of times now. It doesn't get any less scary to me every time we put it up on the screen. Because that is a huge goal. That is a, a goal that should cause us to feel inadequate to feel like one man that God is calling to go up against the Midianites? How could we not feel inadequate in the face of a task like that? And yet God wants to meet us, church, right at the point of our inadequacy. He wants, us to, remi- he wants to remind us, just like he reminded Gideon, that even though we are inadequate, he is more than adequate for whatever he has called us to do. You know, after Gideon said what he said about being the last person ever that God should have picked, did you notice that God doesn't actually correct that? Right? God doesn't actually say to Gideon, you know, really, Gideon, you're actually quite an important person. Actually, your clan is really not that bad, Gideon. It's, it's actually pretty high up in my eye. He doesn't say any of that because the reality is what Gideon was saying is probably true. But how does God respond? God just takes all of that and moves it to the side because it doesn't matter. What God says is right there in verse 16. He said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. This is the same thing God said to Moses earlier when he expressed the same doubts about being able to rescue God's people, it's the same thing God would later say to Jeremiah, I will be with you. And it's what God wants to say to us, church. He wants to say to us, First Baptist Melbourne, even though you are inadequate to do this, I will be with you. And if I am with you, then you can have the victory because God is with us, then we can be men and women of valor. If God is with us, then we can get the task done because God is adequate. God is more than adequate for whatever he calls his church to do. So first we say, God, save us from our inadequacy. In the next part of this story, I see another potential pitfall that we could fall into, another place where we need to say, God, save us. And, And here we need to say, God, save us from our idolatry. From our idolatry. If you look down in verse 25, the Lord comes back to Gideon that very same night. And the first thing that he wants us or wants him to do is very interesting. Look at that with me, verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him, But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. And so they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. And therefore on that day he called him Jerubal saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. So this is really interesting to me. God is calling Gideon to be a warrior, and yet the first thing that God wants Gideon to go to war against is not actually the Midianites. It's the worship of false gods going on inside his own house. Apparently, Gideon's father, Joash, was a Baal worshiper. And he had an idol to Baal right outside of their family home, an altar built to Baal, an Asherah pole built beside it for the worship of Baal's wife. And so God tells Gideon that he needs to tear down these idols. He needs to use the remains of what he's torn down and build a proper altar there for the worship of the Lord. He needs to take a bull and sacrifice it on top of that altar. And you can imagine, How hard this would have been for Gideon to do this because it was his own father that these idols belonged to and yet he did it anyway. Now, admittedly, he was a little bit scared to do it, and so he did it in the middle of the night, but he was obedient to the Lord nonetheless. And when it was daytime, the people in Gideon's hometown get up and they see the smoke rising from the altar, from this bull that Gideon has sacrificed. They see the altars of Baal torn down. And when they find out that Gideon was the one who had torn them down, instead of being happy about this, they were irate. And they wanted Gideon to be put to death But of all people, Gideon's father, who was the owner of these idols, apparently the Lord did a work in his heart because he stands up for his son and he basically makes the argument, look, if Baal is a real God, then let him plead for himself. Right? It's his altar that has been torn down. And so if he's a real God, let him do something about it. And if he doesn't do something about it, then guess what? He's not a real God anyway, and we shouldn't be afraid of him. And it was a good point. But I think sometimes when we read stories like this about idols in the Old Testament, we just think, you know, how silly, right? How, how silly to worship a, a wooden god, a wooden pole. And we think, you know, I would never do that. I'd never worship a statue. I'd never worship a pole. And maybe we wouldn't, but, you know, an idol is just anything that we worship, anything that we trust in other than God. And even though we might not have statues and idols in our houses, we still have idols that we worship because an idol can be anything we trust in. Money can be an idol. Entertainment can be an idol. Our pleasure, our comfort can be an idol. We can make an idol out of another person. And, and so maybe if you're here and you're really not that passionate about what we're talking about, Really not that passionate about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that passionate about reaching people in India or reaching people in Boston or even reaching people across the street from you who don't know Jesus and are right now on a pathway that leads to hell. Is it possible that the reason that you're not that passionate about it is because an idol has gripped your heart? And because there is a person or there is a thing or there is a pursuit that you are chasing after that right now has gripped your heart to the point that you really do not care about the burden of sharing the gospel with the world that Jesus Christ has given to his church. That's a real danger, I think, for us. I think another danger for some of us, though, is a little bit different because, you know, another thing that can become an idol is even our own plans, Right? Even our own church's plans for what we want to do for the Lord can subtly become an idol for us if we're not careful. Aaron still shared with our pastoral team and our ministry team this past week about this. And he spoke with us about how sometimes we make an idol out of our plans because we want so badly for our work to mean something. We want so badly for our work to matter. And so we make an idol out of our work. We make an idol out of our plans and our goals instead of worshiping the Lord and Him alone. And so while we are right to make plans as the Lord leads us, we also need to make sure that we're constantly lifting our plans up to the Lord and submitting our plans to the Lord because this is his church. And he has every right to change our plans. And he has every right to scrap our plans. And and, and, and those plans will happen only if they're his plans. And they'll happen in his timetable. And so maybe more than anything else, this is what we need to cry out to God today. We need to say, God, save us from our idolatry. God, if you see anything in any of our hearts that is an idol, anything that we're trusting in or caring about more than you, God, would you break that idol into pieces so that we can worship you and you alone. That's what God wanted to do in the heart of Gideon before he ever used him in battle against the Midianites. When we get to chapter 7, The battle of the Midianites is about to take place, and the Lord is not happy with the size of Gideon's army. Look at that with me, chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me, to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead, and 22,000 of the people return, and 10,000 remain. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many, bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Wow. And so you see this picture of what God uh, does here in this story. And I think it just reminds us of a third and final pitfall, a third place that we need to ask God to save us. We need to say, God, save us from a feeling of self sufficiency. You know, earlier we talked about feeling inadequate. And in some ways, this is almost the opposite danger from that of feeling self-sufficient, like we don't need any help from the Lord and we don't need any help from anybody else because we've got this on our own. I think that's what God was trying to save Gideon from and his army from in this story. Earlier when I said that God wasn't happy with the size of Gideon's army, it's not that he thought Gideon's army was too small. It's that he thought Gideon's army was too big. And so he told Gideon to shrink his army down smaller. That's not normally what you try to do when you're getting ready for a battle. Now, already, as it was, Gideon was outman. The Midianites had 135,000 soldiers. And at the beginning of this, Gideon had 32,000 soldiers. He was already outman four to one. And yet, apparently, the Lord thought those were still too good of odds. And so he tells Gideon, you need to shrink it down even further. And he uses two tests to do that. The first test is the fear test. Basically, Gideon said, whoever's afraid, go home. And 22,000 of them said, yep, I'm afraid. I'm out of here, right? And they went home. And that left 10,000 people against 135,000 people. Now the odds are getting worse. But the Lord said, it's still too many. He said, take them down to the water and let them drink. And separate the ones who get down uh, and, and, and lap the water like a dog, right, with their tongue. Separate them from those who, who drink by kneeling down and cupping the water, right? And separate them into two groups. And, and those who lap the water like a dog, right, from those 300 people, I'm going to save you. And send the rest of the 10,000 home. Now, some people try to debate whether the dog lappers or the scoopers were the better soldiers, Some people argue that those who were the dog lappers were the more elite soldiers. Some people say the opposite. I'm pretty sure that that whole uh, argument and conversation entirely misses the point. The point is emphatically not that God was trying to give Gideon a 300-man army of green berets, right? That emphatically what God was saying is, I want to make your army so small and so pathetic and so outnumbered that there's no conceivable possible way that at the end of this, you could take any credit for this. Because you will know for sure that you could not do this without divine assistance. That is the point. And we know that's the point from verse two. When the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. Why? Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying my own hand has saved us. And so God says, Gideon, I can't let you take 32,000 people into battle. If I do that, you're going to think that you did this. You're going to think that you won this battle on your own. And I can't let you think that, Gideon. You have to know, Gideon, that, that I am the one who won this battle for you because God says, I will not give my glory to another And when you think about our church and this vision that God has given to us called greater things, I believe the same principle holds true. God is still saying to us, I will not give my glory to another because he deserves all the glory and all the praise for what he does in this church. And I think throughout this process that the Lord wants to keep us in a place of dependency upon him where we know we are not self-sufficient to do any of these things, that we need him desperately. Sometimes the hardest test a person can get is a test of success. It's true for us as individuals. When things start to go really, really well in our lives, will we be careful to give God all the glory or will we rob the glory that belongs to him? It's no different with a local church family. When God begins to bless, when things begin to go really, really well, that is perhaps the hardest test that a church will face will we begin to think as churches are planted as buildings are built as more and more people come to know the lord and we pray that that will take place will we begin to think over time that that happened because of us i pray never i pray that in our church we will always remember that the victory belongs to the lord And we won't read the rest of this story of the the battle itself. It's probably the part of the story that we're the most familiar with. Gideon takes his 300 men and he surrounds the camp of the Midianites at night. They're in the valley below him. And in the hands of Gideon's soldiers, there is a torch in one hand with a clay pot over it blocking the light. And in the other hand, there is a trumpet. And so the signal that Gideon gives, right, they Uh, blow the trumpet they cry out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon they break those clay pots and all of a sudden 300 lights are gleaming all around the camp of the Midianites and as the soldiers stumble out of their tents and they look up and see this blinding light all around them that wasn't there just a second ago they hear the trumpet sound they hear the cries they think they're being invaded by an, uh, an immense army and the Lord causes a panic and a confusion to come among them. They begin to attack each other, thinking that they're the enemy. Gideon and his men begin to pursue them, and the Lord routs them and gives them an incredible victory. And yet, it's so funny when you think about it, even though they yelled out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, what they had in their hands were trumpets and pots and torches, not a sword. Because it wasn't their swords that saved them. It wasn't Gideon's sword that saved them. It was the Lord's sword. The Lord's sword is the only sword they would need. And church family, so it is for us. If greater things are going to happen here, it won't be because we did them. It will be because we have a great God and Savior who does greater things for his glory. I mentioned earlier that this fall and this one year anniversary of kicking off Greater Things, that I wanted to share with you a clear giving goal for this anniversary, to be clear because of of how our church has already rallied around this Greater Things vision, because of how sacrificially you have given to the Lord over the course of this past year, we are already in a position where we can move forward with what the Lord has called us to do. But as our pastors met and prayed over the course of this last year, we just began to ask the question, what would it look like? What would it look like if we were to get to a place where 50% of the total cost of this project had either been given or pledged to be given over the course of of the next two years and it's exciting to think about that because relatively speaking to the size of the total project we're not that far away from that number and you see that goal there on the last page of the folder that you were given earlier in this service and we're just simply calling this goal our 50 50 goal and you can see how the numbers break down there i won't walk through all of that but but basically we anticipate that less than a million dollars is what is needed to get us to that point of being at 50% of the total project. Remember that with all of our gifts to greater things, 90% of them goes to the facility expansion, and using the tithing principle, 10% of those gifts go to the church planning pipeline fund. And and, and because of that, our giving goal to get to this point of being at the 50-50 mark is $800,000. And what we are praying for is that by the end of the next two years, by the end of the construction phase, that we would be at that 50-50 point. Of course, we're praying that we would make a lot of progress towards that goal this far, or if the Lord would so bless that we might even hit that goal or even surpass that goal this fall. But again, we have two years, we believe, to get to that place. And again, we can move forward without getting to that 50-50 mark. But we really believe that the Lord would have us get there by the time we finish this construction phase in order for us to have the financial freedom that the Lord would want us to have so that the ministries of our church can move forward, the ministries of our church to not be hampered in any way. Now, with that said, I know that more than 600 families in our church, including my own family, went through a process just a year ago of praying about what the Lord would have us do over this three-year period. And right now, we're one year into that, and we have two years to go. And, and if you have been giving over the course of this past year, thank you so much for giving to the Lord. And really, I hope that you will hear this. We're, we're really not asking you, uh, if, if that's you that I just described, to make uh, another Uh, commitment. Uh, We know that you've been faithfully giving for this past year and there are two years remaining uh, on that. And so we're not asking for you to turn in a new commitment card this fall unless the Lord is leading you in some way to make a change to your commitment that you've already made. And we understand that there are actually two directions that you might need to make a change. There are some of you uh, who are here and, and, and maybe your situation has changed over the course of the past year. And maybe what God had laid on your heart to give a year ago, you have given to this point, but your situation has changed and, and you just know looking ahead, at least right now, that you're not going to be able to make that gift that the Lord laid on your heart to give. And if that's the case, we really do not want you to be kind of carrying around this false sense of guilt, right, for the next two years if your life circumstances have just changed. And, and so you can let us know about that by using that card this fall. We also know that there are some of you, though, that maybe your circumstances have changed also, and maybe you're actually now a year into this able to do more, and maybe as you pray over the course of the next month, God will lead you to actually make an additional one-time gift or to increase your pledge over the remaining two years to help us to reach this goal that the Lord has put in front of you, and I don't want you to think, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, what I will give or the amount of my gift, because, Again, we know in the Lord's eyes, it really isn't about the size of the gift, right? It's about our hearts before the Lord. It's about us individually and as families just being faithful to him to just do whatever he has laid on our hearts to do. I know also that in the past year, there are over 200 people that the Lord has added to our church family. We praise God for that, and we want you to hear today that that it's not too late to be a part of what God is doing with greater things. We're only one year in. There are still two years to go, and you can be a part of investing in the lives that will be changed through this Greater Things project. And so we just want to invite you to be a part of that. Uh, I also want to just share a little bit of the schedule coming up. I know this was shared earlier with you as well. But over the next two Sundays, you'll see that in just a moment. Over the next two Sundays, we have some vision luncheons that have been planned right after church next week on the 22nd and then again on the 29th. If you're new to our church or you were not able to be there at one of the vision desserts that we had last fall, then these vision luncheons are for you. And uh, you should be receiving an invitation in the mail. Uh, but even if you don't, please sign up for that online and uh, call the church office. We'd love for you to be a part next Sunday or uh, the week after that just to come to one of those two, whichever fits best with your schedule. And that's just going to be a special day of sharing together more uh, about what God has doing in our church. I'm really excited also about October the 6th. On October the 6th, we're actually going to have our fall picnic this year right here on the grounds of where the new worship center will be. And I've never done this before, so I'm excited about it. We're going to bring in a portable baptistry, all right? You got to be brave for this. And uh, we're going to put it out there right on the spot of where the baptistry will be, Lord willing, in the new building. And we're going to have the first baptisms on that spot Uh, that will ever happen in the history of our church. And so if you're here and you're thinking, you know, I've needed to take that step to follow the Lord in baptism for some time, what an awesome opportunity to do that. And you can sign up for that at fbcmail.info. We're just looking forward to that night on the 6th together celebrating what God has done. And then October 13th is four Sundays away from today. Uh, That's an important date to remember. That's our Commitment Sunday and that's the day uh, for anyone here that the Lord leads you uh, to make a gift or to make a a pledge over the next two years of what the Lord would have you to do. Just wanna ask you to turn that in on that day. Two weeks after that, we'll share with you the results of that. We'll celebrate what God has done. We'll talk more uh, about uh, some of the things coming up in the spring as we get closer and closer to breaking ground next year. Uh, And you know, through it all, even though at times we have to share uh, things like floor plans and numbers and things like that my prayer is that we would never ever forget what greater things is really all about ultimately it is not about new buildings or even new churches being planted it's about more people hearing the good news of jesus christ and what he has done for us i'm thankful for those who gave years ago so that we could be here today to hear his good news and to see our family's lives impacted. And now we have an opportunity to give so that even generations to come will have a chance to hear his message and his word proclaimed. You know, last fall we had a morning where we just rearranged our whole schedule and we took the morning to, to pray at different places around the church. One of the places we prayed was right outside on the site of that new Uh, worship center. And if you remember on that day, we took rocks and we wrote on those rocks the initials of people that each of us know that do not know Jesus. We began to pray for those people by name. Uh, We have taken those rocks and made them into a cross that is actually located in our war room, our prayer room, right across the hall. You can go and see that. And one day we hope to take those rocks and even to put them in the foundation of that new building, building right there at the altar, because this is what we're praying for. We're praying that lives would be changed for all of eternity. This is why we pray. And this is why we give. And this is why we go. So that the people whose names were written on those rocks and thousands more will have the chance to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord, as we walk through this journey, let's ask our great God and Savior to do even greater things in this place. And let's ask him to do those things in his way, not in our way, in his way. Let's ask him to do these things by his power. And let's ask him to do these things for his glory. I want to ask you to stand, church family, and I just want us to sing and to proclaim at the end of this service what we believe, that our great God and Savior is not finished with what he wants to do here in Melbourne, that he still has greater things to be done here. Let's sing it as loud as we can. Let's sing it to the Lord.